Hey Anthem, hope you're doing well today. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Last week, we kicked off the series uh, looking at the book of Daniel and uh, it's already opened up huge opportunity for us to see the current context and, and lens that we're living in um, differently and, and really usefully, hopefully. And Daniel's all about uh, this group of Israelites, uh, particularly honing in on Daniel and his friends. They're in exile in Babylon. They've been sucked away from their homeland, stripped of their identity. And it's really all about their struggle to remain faithful amidst intense cultural coercion and persuasion to live their way of life. And Daniel's going to show us what it looks like to walk in faithfulness uh, in any and every single context. And so last week, we just opened up the door to our study in Daniel, kind of with this idea that there are two wrong ways and one right way to, to think about and to live in exile. And uh, the two wrong postures or the postures you want to avoid when you're in exile are, are separatism and syncretism. So separatism is this idea where Christianity becomes a subculture and, and the term Christian becomes an adjective for the kind of school you go to, the kind of workplace you're in, the coffee shops you go to, etc. And so that's one posture to avoid while in exile is to fully pull yourself away from culture and create your own mini culture. Now, the second posture that you want to avoid is syncretism, uh, which I, I would say is probably our more where our tendency is or where the actual temptation is nine times out of 10. It's the far greater danger where we assimilate into the host culture, the host city are just swallowed up by that culture. And last week we said there's a better way to live, a better way to move forward. And it's this idea of becoming a creative minority. It's how to think well, wisely, and creatively when you are not the dominant culture or the dominant empire this idea of living wisely in exile. And this is how we've been kind of defining that even before this current moment that we find ourselves in, what we kicked off on Vision Sundays become more relevant and profound than ever. And it's this idea that we are growing to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. And the encouragement from last week was this, don't waste your exile. You're, you're in it. You can't do anything about it. But there's a way to live well and wisely, and what we'll find out today, holy while in exile, and don't waste that opportunity. So I shared this quote from last week from Ignatius of Loyola, and I feel like I'm on repeat of Broken Record. It's just so good and so relevant for where we're at now. I want to share it again. And he says this, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. He goes on to say, our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. How good is that? It's so good. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. So we, we get to choose. What, what leads to a deepening life with God and what takes us off course? Now, what's worth noting, however, is just how coercive the culture is around us. 
just how good our culture around us is getting, uh, is good at getting us to compromise our, our way of life, our values, and getting to look more and more like the world around us. And we really see that personified in our story here in Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar taking the best and the brightest out of their context, bringing them under his umbrella, under his roof, in his own university to train them become good Babylonians, incredibly coercive and oppressive empire and culture. And uh, what he does in these first couple of verses is really interesting. He does four things in these first couple of verses. The first thing he does is he isolates them. Second thing is he enculturates them. Third is he integrates them. And fourth, he identifies them or re-identifies them. And what I want you to do is I want you to see in just the next couple of minutes, Babylon's strategy, King Nebuchadnezzar's strategy to influence Daniel and his friends, because I, I would argue it's the exact same one, the culture, whether it's our, our nation or our city or whatever, the culture around us uses to influence you and I as well. And so starting in verse three and four, what we see here is the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the best, the brightest, the good looking people, the smart people, the wise people, the people from nobility and royalty and bring them to the king's palace. So away from their homeland, away from their family, away from the temple, which would have been their modern day version of church. And we here, we even think Daniel's a teenager. Daniel and his friends, 13, 14, 15 years old. He's young, he's impressionable, he's moldable, and, and if I can say, maybe even easy to seduce into a different way of living. Now, there's a reason that uh, 18-year-olds, when they graduate high school, leave their parents' house, do all kinds of crazy things because there's a kind of unhingedness and ungluedness that happens when you remove yourself from your community that's pouring into you values and ways of life. This kind of inhibition you experience when you're unplugged from your community. That's why I think so many people lose their faith after high school. Suddenly they're not being forced to go to church or they don't have their same friend groups or whatever. They can do anything they want and it's like a rumspringa of sorts and they're just unglued and unhinged from their community that's pointing them back to the good way of life, the, the truth about life. And so this first step uh, is to isolate, which is why we believe as a church, community groups are so important. It's why it's not like a side hustle in our church or just those uh, who are in it for the extra spirituality, but it is the spine, the backbone of who we are, especially in times like these. We need each other. Desperately, we need each other. And so the first step is to get Daniel away from his community of faith, isolation. The second step is enculturation. They are enculturated. First, he's educated in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The back end of verse four, the king uh, instructs Aspenaz, this chief eunuch, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This is kind of like a social engineering situation. It's not just designed to educate Daniel on Babylon, but it's to actually make Daniel Babylonian. That's not even the worst part. What happens here is that the best of Babylonian culture, food and wine from the king's table, more than likely female companionship, which would have been the norm in the ancient world, was spread out in front of these boys and says, here you go, take the best of what we have. We see in verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. 
By that time, they were to, by the end of that time, they were able to stand before the king. And so they're not only getting educated, they're being indoctrinated into the culture, the way of life. And so notice the appeal to Daniel's appetites and his ambitions. Here, just give in to your desire, your craving. You deserve it. It's okay. This is how we do things here. It's, you're not back home anymore. The rules are different. Go ahead. Just give in a little. And they hold out this vision of the good life that is just so tantalizing. But in the face of enculturation, Daniel lived out an alternative story. What we call the Bible, what Daniel would have called the law and the prophets, or simply the Torah. And as we read through Daniel, you'll actually discover that he was regularly reading the Bible of his day in a way to saturate his mind and imagination with the words and the story of God. And it's something you and I can do today to not buy into the narrative of Ventura or the secular West or America or whatever, but to buy into the worldview and the way of Jesus and the story of God that we see in scripture. So isolate, he isolates them, he enculturates them, and he integrates them. Daniel and his friends are integrated into society. So they don't have the luxury of hiding away, far away somewhere else. They're right in the thick of it, in the very center of Babylon, under the king's roof, in the king's university getting like Babylon at its height and most concentrated. But in the face of that kind of integration, they're living out an alternative way of life. Not just an alternative thought or story that they're believing, but an alternative way of life. Daniel built his life around practices, like alternative practices, like punk rock countercultural practices like fixed hour prayer. And we'll discover later in chapter six that he would pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. He would do things like fast. That was a regular part of his life. All sorts of things. What we would today call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. And I would actually argue one of the most important things to do in exile, especially in this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in, is to embrace and lean on those spiritual practices. Things like scripture reading, prayer, fasting, simplicity, generosity, silence, solitude, church on Sunday, community groups during the week. These are all practices that form in us an alternative way of life. And all of this, every single discipline, every single practice, every single habit is this act of rebellion against a coercive culture and an oppressive empire. It's counterformation against the formation of the machine of Babylon, or in our time and our place, the machine of America, or the machine of self-idolization or self-happiness, the machine of hyper-individualism and connectedness. Whatever that is, these spiritual practices are a way of rebelling against that and actually embracing the way of Jesus. So he isolates them, he enculturates them, he integrates them, and he identifies them or re-identifies them. They're all identified or renamed. Look at verse seven, Daniel one, verse seven. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now it's a little bit tricky for you and I to kind of wrap our minds around how profound and important that moment is. But in the ancient world, your name said so much about who you are. It wasn't just a, a label to, for like your DoorDash order or signing up for a yoga class or whatever. It, it represented something about who you are. It was your identity, but even more than that, it was your destiny. It, it was almost prophetic. 
It was this one word moniker for some of the truest things about you. And one Old Testament scholar, Michael Knowles, he says this, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that that bearer was intended to fulfill. Now, all four of these teenagers are renamed after the Babylonian pantheon, all the gods that they worshipped. So Daniel in Hebrew means Yahweh is my judge, and he's renamed Belteshazzar, which means treasurer of Bel. That's another name for Marduk, who's the king of all the Babylonian pantheon, the king of all the Babylonian gods. Hananiah in Hebrew means Yahweh shows grace, and he's renamed Shadrach under the command of Aku, the moon god. And Mishael in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh. And it's changed in Babylonian, he's renamed to who is like Aku. And Azariah means Yahweh is my helper, and he's renamed Abednego, which means the servant of Anu, another god. And this is not like, hey, your name is hard to pronounce, we're going to give you a simple name. This is not like an Ellis Island situation here. This is a deeply repressive move to replace their God-given Hebrew identity with a pagan Babylonian identity. And what I love about actually Daniel is they rebel against that. Even Daniel doesn't even, they don't call themselves by their Babylonian names, but by their Hebrew names. They even like, there's all sorts of misspellings of their names throughout the book of Daniel. And that was thought to be some sort of like textual error at some point, but it's actually like Daniel's or the writer of Daniel's like punk rock response to say, it's your name. I'm not even going to bother learning how to spell these names, but that's what Babylon does. That's what, that's what America does. That's what Ventura does. That's what any culture does is what they say is, no, that's not who you are. You're, you're not holy. You're not blameless. You're not a child of God. This is who you are. You're an influencer. You're famous. Whatever. That's not who you are. This is who you are. And what we'll see throughout the book of Daniel is Daniel and his friends throw off those things. They actually show themselves to be faithful. Even though they're isolated, they cling to community. Even though they're enculturated, they cling to the story narrative of God. Even though they're integrated, they live out these alternative punk rock spiritual practices. And even though they're re-identified, they know who they are in God. And I get end right now. There's so much just in those couple of verses and what Babylon is trying to do for us to unpack. And maybe you can even go back and think like, what do some of those responses look like for you? If that's what Babylon was doing, this is what our culture does to us. What does a, a gospel-informed response to those moves by culture look like? But that all just leads up to the text that we're actually in today. Because if you're reading through verses 1 through 7 and you're reading that kind of intense cultural pressure, maybe your first thought is like mine. It's like, oh, these boys are not going to make it. This is not going to be, this is not going to turn out good for them. But you get to verse 8 and you read this haunting line that goes, but Daniel resolved. Now, I would encourage you to highlight that, circle it, star it, memorize it, tattoo it, whatever. This is a critical verse and what the entire chapter is about. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And the Hebrew in this actually translates more literally to say that Daniel arranged in his heart. But that opening statement of this section says that Daniel made a choice about how he was going to honor God with his life, predetermined what his actions were going to be. And somehow this teenage boy found the courage to stare down Babylon eye to eye and say, I'm not going to compromise. No compromise at all. There are all sorts of dangers when you're living in exile. But I would argue this is at the top of the list of dangers. And it's at the top of the list of dangers that we face in this moment in time in in Southern California in 2020, in the West, in a city like the one that we love and live in and and call home. Like Daniel, we, we stick out in our city. We're different. We're not like everybody else who, who's living under this overwhelming pressure to compromise. But there is still that pressure for us to compromise, to give in, to just calm down and assimilate in and, and chill out and settle in. Daniel and his friends determined in themselves with God to stand out, predetermined that they would be faithful amidst cultural coercion. So some of the big questions we need to ask ourselves in exile, in spiritual exile, but also in quarantine and self-isolation is what does integrity look like? Like accountability, normalcy has all, has all changed, but the call to be God's people has not. What does integrity look like? What convictions do you have? What is your resolve? Specifically, when the world is trying to preach to you a different gospel, a different way of living, What is your resolve? And Daniel's resolve was not obstinate, but he was insistent that the way of God is better than the way of the world. He wanted to specifically demonstrate to the Babylonians that the way of God would prove better than the the way of the alternative. And I think that opens up such an incredible missional question for us. Like, how can we live in a way that demonstrates that the way of God is better than the way of Americana? the way of Ventura, the way of whatever the culture is that is prevailing. How can we demonstrate the way of God is actually better? And what's next in the narrative is actually super interesting. In verses 9 through 16, Daniel's putting the world to the test. He's actually saying, I'm going to live the way of... He's not putting God to the test. He's putting the world to the test, saying, I'm going to be faithful to my God. And at the end of this, I will be better. The way of life will be better. Check this out in verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, right? So even in exile, God is there doing his thing. He's not just in Israel. He's in Babylon with his people. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's like, hey, hey, I don't, I don't know what you're up to, but it's, it's my head on the chopping block if you come out worse than when you started. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, notice using their Hebrew names, not their Babylonian ones, says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants accordingly to what you see. This is the first like controlled test right here, right? 
Let's do a little comparison. Who's gonna come out better, us with the veggies or you guys with the meat and the wine? So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. What's going on here? Well, first off, I hate to break it to you. This is not like a God-inspired weight loss plan. That's not what's happening here. There is a lot of debate and controversy over what exactly is happening in this moment, but it's most likely that the meat for the king's table wasn't kosher. And uh, so to eat it was to break the food laws from the Torah. There are other ideas around uh, like idol sacrifice and all sorts of stuff as well. Like this was meat sacrifice to idols. But honestly, the kosher thing is probably the most likely. And Daniel draws a line in the sand and he says, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh and that's against his way of living. And Daniel's resolve and faith was such that he believed that honoring God was going to prove a different outcome than the life the king of Babylon had attended for. And his attitude was not putting God to the test, but confident that God's way will hold up in the face of this new normal. Is that our posture? That God's way will hold up in the new normal that we find ourselves in. When God's people live by faith, God demonstrates his faithfulness. So what are the ways we can stand in faithfulness and show the world the power of God today? The answer, I think based on this passage, is to be a person of faith and resolve and look for those key opportunities where the Lord is calling you to live by faith and demonstrate his power and his goodness. It'd be hard to argue that this time right now is not one of those times. How are you going to live in exile and quarantine and self-isolation? Are you going to trust that God's way of living is better than the world's way of living? This is maybe a great question to take to your community groups this week. Like, is there anything God's saying to you? Anything he's prompting or stirring you to grow into? Now, what we have next in verse 17 through 21 is we get the results of that test. How did this all work out? So verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So it's not just that Daniel's smart and hardworking. It's that God gave knowledge from the Holy Spirit there in that moment to his education and his career. Remember this career and this language. This is Babylonian pagan culture. God gave knowledge into pagan pseudo-spiritual culture. This is absolutely fascinating. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding with, with, about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God blessed the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends by giving them wisdom and understanding beyond any of the wise people of the day. This is, this is a supernatural result of, of faith infused into natural situations. This is Guys, this is God's speciality. He takes natural situations, calls us to live by faith, and then infuses a supernatural result. And in Daniel, 
with Daniel and Daniel's situation, they ate and drank differently. And, and while they were definitely like bright young men to begin with, the narrative of scripture indicates that God multiplied their wisdom and understanding. And there's a sense that of God uh, filling, of God's filling in us that increases our capacity to do God's will and his work while we're in exile. I would say not even in spite of exile, but because we live in exile. And verse 21 brings this, this first chapter to a close. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So a seemingly like benign note, but that's like a fast forward in the story. So just to clarify, from Daniel chapter 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, to that last line of verse 21, the first year of the king of Cyrus, that spans well over six decades. That's the writer's way, a, a writer of Daniel's way of saying that, that that's the beginning and that's the end. The, literally the first date, the last date of the exile. And it's, this, it's the writer's way of saying that Daniel is the prophet and the paragon for how to live and not only survive, but thrive in exile with no compromise. He, he's our archetype. What chapter one does for us is it tees up the rest of the book that says Daniel is our guy. Look to him for how to live well, wisely, and wholly in exile with no compromise. Now, here's the project for this week. Maybe do this with your family, do it alone, do it with your community group. Create space to listen to the Holy Spirit and just ask God, say, God, what, what are the areas of compromise in my life? And ask that question, seriously. And the odds are there's probably already something bubbling to the top. There's already something stirring at the forefront of your mind and imagination. But write it down. And not, don't jot down like 20 things. Maybe just take one or two or three. Write it down. Work through it. Pray through it. Have a moment of intention saying, Holy Spirit, show me. And then when you're ready, maybe just write out some, some of the means to change, some concrete, calculated new habits to cultivate, to change or in the compromise issue, maybe to not change, you know? And so if there's areas of compromise or maybe you just have like been really lax about Bible reading during your quarantine, maybe say, okay, concrete, here's my plan. Every day, 6 a.m. when I wake up, I'm gonna read a Psalm and a proverb and a chapter in the New Testament or something like that. And maybe it's this area of compromise where you're feeling like, especially, man, like guys who are home alone a lot during the self-isolation, the temptation to move towards porn as a, as an, a means of entertainment, of escape, of pleasure, of even weird community, like in that space, like the temptation is very real to compromise and to give in just a little bit because no one's there watching you, holding you accountable, like resolve right now, put in place concrete measures, you know, install um, ever accountable or X3 or some kind of uh, monitoring software, loop in a few guys from your community group and say, hey, this is a temptation for me. It's literally a temptation for every person on the planet, every guy on the planet that has the internet in their pocket and loop them in and say, hey, this is a growing temptation for me. I want you to ask me hard questions. Keep me accountable. Like make a concrete plan, whatever it is. And maybe just a note in your phone or like a three by five card to tape on your fridge or near your computer or something like that. I don't know what it, it is for you, but chances are it's something. For Daniel, it was food and wine from the king's table. I'm guessing that's not your beef right now, but what are the areas of compromise in your life? 
And what I want you to notice, what kind of one final thought in closing here, I want you to notice that Daniel went above and beyond in his pursuit of holiness. It wasn't just like the Torah minimum. He went above and beyond in his pursuit of holiness. So in all the Torah or the Bible, it just says like no unkosher meat. And what Daniel does is no meat from the king's table. And on top of that, no wine from the king's table as well. Now, wine's not a bad thing. It's all over scripture, marking moments of celebration. Jesus drinks wine. Wine is great. All right. And you can call Daniel legalistic. You can call him a fundamentalist. You can say he's from whatever particular background, but no matter what you say about him, the dude made it through exile and in doing so, he changed the world. You know, often in exile, we make the tragic mistake of erring on the side of of liberty rather than the side of holiness. Like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And we tell our kids that all the time, right? This is like parenting 101. Just because you can run in the street doesn't mean that you should run in the street. Exile is not a place to do that. Exile is not a place to start bending on holiness. If there's this in-between area, this gray area, this amorphous area, maybe even right now you're thinking about something in your life and you're already trying to get out of it, right? Well, it's like, is this a conviction from the Holy Spirit or just like my oppressive religious upbringing? Or is this just like self-imposed guilt from Bert and the elder team or something like that? And first ask the question. Here's a good barometer kind of litmus test question. If you're struggling with something, maybe it feels like this amorphous gray area. The first question you ask is, is this something Jesus would do if he were me? And chances are that weeds out a whole lot of us trying to justify the things we want to do. It says, would Jesus do this if he were me? And maybe you even step into that gray. If the answer is no, then there you have it. If, if the answer is, well, I don't know, Jesus didn't have Netflix. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So I, I, who's, who's to say how he would have responded, you know, when my boyfriend asked me to move in with him or when I kind of see this inappropriate Netflix show, but it's kind of there. It's just art. It's entertainment. Like it's not going to affect me at all, whatever. You know, it's just another glass uh, of wine. I already had a couple, but here's my third or my fourth or whatever, whatever the deal is for you. And maybe in that gray space and you're already trying to justify your way out of it. And my encouragement to you, based on the example we have with Daniel, is rather than err on the side of I can do it, err on the side of is this helping my deepening life with God? Should I do it? Err on the side of holiness. I really don't think we're going to get to the end. You know, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is there in all his glory. Believers are brought brought back. And I don't think we're going to get to the end and go, man, seeing Jesus, beholding his glory. I I really wished I just clocked in some more hours looking at porn. Man, I really, really wish I, I just could have moved in with my girlfriend sooner. Or I really wish I could have, whatever it is, fill in the blank, fill in the struggle. I really wish I just had more Instagram followers. I, I really wish I just made more money, honestly. I don't, and maybe it's just me. I just, I don't think those are the things we're going to be thinking of when we meet Jesus. I think what we're going to be thinking is, why did I waste so much time on so much garbage? Why did I sacrifice being with Jesus for all these temporary things that all left me empty and and soulless anyway? 
Why, why did I waste my time not being with Jesus, sitting in his presence? Why did I trade that for all these things that are gone anyway? All these things that were good for me anyway, that had no eternal value anyway. Why did I hoard all this money when God gave me money as an opportunity to be generous? It's, it's not worth it because nothing is worth the cost of the presence of God. Jesus said over and over and over again, this iconic line from the Old Testament, be holy as I, your Lord God, am holy. And he would say things like, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. If you want to see God, if you want to wake up in the morning and and have God not be this like abstract idea or that feeling you get at church every once in a while, but actually a relationship with someone you live with day in and day out, a presence that you enjoy from morning through night, then you have to be holy. Not to earn God's favor. That's not what we're talking about here. The gospel says we get the free gift of grace, but it also calls us to live differently. If anything, holiness is more for us than it is for God to clear out the clutter and distraction of our lives. The things that that try to say they're going to be most important or most fulfilling or most satisfying, to take those things away and actually say, no, we're going to find our satisfaction in God and God alone. The reality is that we are exiles and we are called to live distinct and holy lives while in exile. But the reality is you have the power to do that. Romans chapter 8, verse 10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Another word for holiness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What Paul is saying there is, is the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from death lives in you dwells in you, thus giving you power to live well, wisely, and wholly in exile. So maybe you're thinking, I, I, don't, I can't do this. My willpower is not there. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm exhausted. I'm ready to say yes to anything. And maybe you're right. You can't do this. But in our weakness, God displays his strength. In our faith, he displays his faithfulness. And in our pursuit of holiness, God reveals himself. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You may not think you have the resolve to stand righteously in holiness in the face of a struggling world to carry wisdom and knowledge. But according to the scriptures, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he gives life to your mortal body. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's a life of no compromise, following the example of Daniel and the teaching of Jesus, not only to just make it through exile, to make it through quarantine, but to change the world in the meantime. Let me pray for you. Father, these are strange times we live in, and we are so grateful you give us your Holy Spirit to help us live well, wisely, and holy in this time. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, bring us into your family. And we pray during this strange season when there are all sorts of things on the table that were never on the table, would you give us wisdom and insight how to live well? Holy Spirit, would you fill us with your presence? 
Would you help us to live wisely and holy in this time? And would you help our lives to be a witness to those who are walking around with no hope? Would you help us to be bearers of your light and your hope? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.